I needed to not skate by for once in my life, and they didn't let me. At the end of the day, if you know that you don't feel good about the job, you got to be able to leave that behind. They just kept asking me to come back, and I truly love Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin. It's always great to be at WTMJ. This is WTMJ Conversations. Welcome to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. David Lee is not only Milwaukee NPR's president and general manager, but is a nationally and locally recognized leader who is named one of the most influential Asian American leaders in the state of Wisconsin. He's also had a lot of other accolades because he's led philanthropic efforts for Milwaukee's safety net hospital system. He was a founding executive officer of Feeding Wisconsin, and he's been part of Imagine Milwaukee. And he's been advocating for the arts and culture in Milwaukee and other places for years and years. And David, you have such a fascinating background. When do you have time to sleep? (laughs) That's so funny. And also incredibly embarrassing to hear all of that. I sleep like normal people uh, from about midnight to to six every day. Um, I sleep every night, six hours, six, six, seven hours. I I operate good on about seven hours of sleep. I I sleep more than most people think. Oh, okay. Because you are a busy, busy man. And how did it all begin for you? Because you're not originally from Wisconsin. Where are you from? I'm originally from San Francisco, grew up in San Francisco, college in New York, lived in Boston, lived in New York, and then lived in Los Angeles for about 10 years where I tried to become, you know, Chinese George Clooney. Um, and like most people... That's I see the resemblance, by the a, way. A little bit. It's a, it's a silver fox, right? <laughs> like most people, like 99.9% of people who move out to Los Angeles to do that thing, I failed. Or rather, it, it wasn't for me, I should say. So I found myself uh, needing to work. And so got a job at the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles as a government relations associate. And, um, you know, really began to learn about um, tikkun olam and uh, Jewish social values and communal, broadly shared communal values. And that really introduced me to the nonprofit sector, um, government relations, community affairs, and my career sort of just slowly built over time uh, in the nonprofit leadership space. Well, you sort of glossed over a lot of things. So we're going to go backwards (laughs) here a bit, because for a while you lived outside the country. I was born in Taiwan. And how long did you live there? Uh, a year or two. Okay, um, so you my, don't really remember that. No, that. no, but you know, a, a story, Libby, that I want to share about that is that my parents moved here with uh, with me in tow as a one-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old with $600 in their pocket. I wouldn't move to Waukesha with $600 in my pocket or even the equiv- the modern-day equivalent now, right? Like that, that sort of bravery and ability to, to kind of give it over to a dream, it just inspires me every day. How did that impact your attitude as you were growing up? What what a great question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. I I think it taught me that you can take chances. Um, I think it taught me that no matter what adversity you find yourself in, if you have friends and family, which, you know, my parents had in Los Angeles, we'd make it through. And that that sort of support network is sort of the fuel, right, for for helping people every day do do things that 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 are that are in some ways superhuman. As a son of immigrants, did you ever suffer discrimination? I don't remember specifically. I do remember that whatever discrimination I may have suffered, it may have been self-imposed. I remember very early on, I didn't speak English like the rest of the people around me. And you know, as a kid, you have one of these like you know toy telephones, and I remember thinking to myself. If I could ever pass the telephone test, 
where I could talk to somebody on the telephone and they would not think of me as speaking with an accent, then I would have made it. And who knew that here I am uh, so many years later in a, with a career in radio. So, so did you practice then as a child? Other than just learning the language? No. I mean, I remember stopping thinking about it. I remember when I stopped thinking about it. Um, and I must have been in high school when I stopped thinking about whether or not I had an accent. And you just moved on from there? I just moved on from there. All right. So you were in high school in California. Yep. Yet you decided to go out east. Yeah. To Vassar of all places, which was, <laughs> I mean, I, I know it's co-educational, but traditionally it was a woman's college. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. How'd you make that choice? Um, to be honest, you know, son of immigrants, um, they gave me the most money. It was, it was a very easy choice. It was either between Vassar or Carleton College in Northfield, um, and I think I had my heart set on, on on Northfield for whatever reason, because I think I had charmed the admissions interviewer, but Vassar came through with a larger financial aid package. Um, you know, what's funny about that story is that I originally wanted to go to NYU Film. I I'd actually studied, I went to a performing arts high school where I studied drama and, and theater. And what did you like doing most when you were there? I think I liked having the freedom to be sort of a weirdo um and you know like being able to like perform and, and like you know explore different characters and, and stuff and i gotta tell you like as as a shy kid um that was hard right like that was a that, that was sort of like a an opportunity to kind of like attempt and try and practice and play and fail and have it be okay Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. When I graduated from Vassar, I realized that people weren't just giving out six-picture deals, strangely. Milwaukee's NPR president and general manager, David Lee, talks about the frustrations of being a screenwriter. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with David Lee. He's the president and general manager of Milwaukee NPR. When you got to Vassar, you pursued a degree in in film. Film. That's right. That's right. What was your aspiration at the time? At the time, I wanted to be. I wanted to become a, a film director. I wanted to be a, a writer, director, and actor. And you know, I have a, a stack of screenplays that 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 nobody wanted to buy. When I graduated from Vassar, I realized that people weren't just giving out six picture deals. Strangely, <laughs> so. I got a job as a professional chef um, with no training, did that for a year, and then moved to New York, where I worked on Wall Street for a year, and then became a, like a marketing consultant for the Fortune 500 consumer packaged good brands before I finally got hired to write a screenplay, which is what got me out to Los Angeles. What was that screenplay? It was for the producer of... That movie, Nine Months, do you remember with Julianne Moore and Hugh Grant? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the producer of that show was trying to make a movie about Dr. Marcel Lascar, who is All right, a, you're going to have to tell us who he is. Yeah, so he was the progenitor of a la carte medicine. Basically, in France, you, you can like, at least back in the 80s or, or late 70s, you could basically call a doctor and they would come to your house. Uh, they sort still of a la carte. have that, yeah. Well, yeah, so he st I guess he started it in, in Paris. Um, and so she was trying to produce a biopic of his life. And so I wrote that screenplay. She bought it, but she couldn't get it made, unfortunately. So how frustrating is it? 
to, to, to be up there with, oh my gosh, here's somebody with a really successful film. She's having me prepare this screenplay. You do all the work, which I'm sure was overwhelming. And it goes nowhere. It was, I mean, as a, for a 20, what, I was 22, 23, um, I think you, you feel like you're going to have more bites at the apple, right? Um, so I don't know if it was super frustrating other than, you know, like, it'll just happen, right? It'll just, my boat will come. And it did in many opportunities, right? Like, in, in other chances, I you ended up in L.A. at this yes, point. Yes, I was yeah. in L.A., yeah. So so I wrote a, a horror movie that got sold, didn't get made. I, you know, helped to run a theater company for, for a couple of years, a small, tiny, tiny theater company for a couple of years, and wrote other things that, that, you know, got to various levels of development but just never got past the finish line. How did you like the L.A. lifestyle, particularly working in film and trying to get something on the screen? For somebody who is a little bit shy. I think it was hard, uh, particularly as a, as a younger man. I think if I had sort of the, the frame of reference or the self-confidence now as an adult, I think I probably would have been a little bit more successful because I would have just been, I would have been open to, you know, putting myself out there more. Were, were you going to casting calls at the time? Uh, yeah. yeah. Cattle calls? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Describe what that's like. Awful. Super awful. Uh, so, you know, you, you show up to, to, to an audition with 500 other people. They bring you in 10 at a time. And these are for commercials, right? Like the, not, for, not for anything that you would want to be a part of. You get like a brief of what the commercial is and you get asked to do a thing, right? Like basically like pantomime a thing and you're in there for 30 seconds and then you're off. It wasn't fun. Did you ever get a commercial? No. Did you ever get a role in a film or a TV show? Yeah, I was in this movie called Wind Talkers by John Woo, uh, Nicolas Cage. It yes. did about six six or eight weeks on it. Um, what, did you have a speaking role? I had, yeah, so I played a, a Japanese soldier, and I had a, 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 a line where I yell fire, um, and I got cut. No. I got cut. It was a one line, right? I was essentially like a glorified extra. Did you get on screen though? Did they? Are you in any of the scenes at all? From real far, I did get fitted for a stunt double for an explosion scene. Um, that was super fun. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was incredible to see the the scale of a hundred and fifty million dollar movie, right? As somebody who had always sort of dreamed about making like real low budget movies about you know people's emotional landscape and you know stuff right like really small independent movies to see like what a 150 million dollar picture looks like it's incredible i i'm sure what a lot of people are wondering six weeks working on a film you get a line even though you got cut what do you get paid for something like that god i can't remember it must have been like 1200 dollars a week i mean that that wasn't eight, bad eight, 800 1200 a week yeah because you had all your meals yep. while you were on yep. set yep so and yeah it wasn't it wasn't bad did you did you make contacts at that time that you thought, okay, this is it, this is my break, and I think you know this will lead to something else? Um, I met Nick Cage once. Uh, he seemed um, not interested to talk to us. Um, I saw him a couple of weeks later um, and invited him to a play that I was directing, um, and he didn't show up. Oh, 
that had to be. <laughs> they, didn't, didn't your heart just sink a little bit? I mean, I guess again, it's it's like it, it's the um, it's it's sort of par for the chorus, right? Like like I, I I don't I don't actually think that I'm special, right? Like I'm just a guy, right? Trying to do trying to do a thing, and so um, yeah, I, I think there was um, never a sense that. Now that you're asking, Libby, maybe I've repressed all that dis- disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. We're going to need therapy yeah. after this interview. <laughs> That's so funny. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. When I was on my honeymoon in Greece, I got an email saying that this network said no. David Lee. The president and general manager of Milwaukee NPR talks about the moment he decided to step back from screenwriting. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with David Lee. He's the president and general manager of Milwaukee NPR. The interesting thing about being in the creative arts, whether you're a, a painter or a singer or an actor or a filmmaker is it's a passion. Yeah. You you have to yeah. have it. You you you've got to have that fire. Yeah. And you want it so much and then finally you grow up a little bit and you think I can't really make much of a living yeah. doing this. What was the moment when you decided, okay, this is going to be it. I got I I, I got to change careers. I got to go in a different direction. Do you remember exactly when that was? A couple of times. The first was I had written a TV show that was getting making the rounds at like major cable networks. And we were my my producing partner and I were very excited about one um, in particular. And when I was on my honeymoon in Greece with my wife at the time. I got an email from him uh, saying that this n- network said no and wouldn't move up, wouldn't move move on with this project. And I think that was that was probably the first moment where I felt that um, because this was a, a show and an idea that had been sitting with me for years and years and years and years. And like my ex-wife now um, had asked me at the time, you know, like when I was working on it, like, well, do you like you were talking about passion just now. Right. Mm-hmm. And and she she asked, like, what do you want to say with your work? And, I, and my answer was, you know, I don't really know, but I know that whatever it is, it's in this piece. It's in this it's in this 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 project which is a project about professional wrestling, the industry of professional wrestling in the early 80s. And that didn't sell? <laughs> it didn't sell in 2008. Um, it, it, insane, uh, if you ask me. Anyways, um, um, because, you know, it's all about, like, the lies we tell ourselves and family and, you know, industry and, like, you know, performance, like all the things that, you know, are sort of wrapped up in pro- professional wrestling. Anyways... Um, I think that was the first moment where, where I knew that, that that it wasn't for me. I think the the, the actual moment was when um, my my wife at the time uh, decided that that she wanted to move to Milwaukee, um, and um, she was out at UCLA finishing her her PhD. She finished her PhD and wanted to be closer to home. She's from Central Wisconsin. We were married at the time, 
and um, and we fought about it. Um, and when I joined her finally in that decision and moved to Milwaukee, I think that was the moment where I knew that that it wasn't it wasn't for me. So the first thing you did when you got to Milwaukee, it, obviously there's not. I mean, there is a filmmaking community yeah. here. There's a theater community, yep. Yep. but it's not necessarily for everyone. Yeah. When did you make that decision that that wasn't the direction you wanted to be? You wanted to go into other kinds of businesses. I think I didn't have access, or I didn't know how to access the community here. I think if I knew that that it had actually what what is an incredibly strong um, film community, I think I may have pursued it a little bit longer. Um, but, you know, I don't know exactly why I didn't, right, like kind of just show up at the Milwaukee International Film Festival at the time and, and like just start to meet people. I think I was probably still smarting a little bit from kind of making that decision and, and leaving the, the, the life. So what was your first job when you got here? My first job was I had a cup of coffee at the Hunger Task Force of Milwaukee. I was their uh, program development uh, coordinator where I visited food pantries across the, the city, um, helping food pantries improve their, their practices and, and, and programs um, to ensure that, that they served uh, food to people who... Um, are hungry um, or with low incomes in a dignified manner. Were you drawn to that because of going back to L.A. when yeah. you were working with the Jewish Federation? Yeah, so in 2008, while I was still in Los Angeles, the Jewish Federation um, began seeing uh, many of their mid-level donors start showing up at the at their food pantry because of the because of the recession at the time, and um, and so they asked me to to build their uh an anti-hunger initiative there and so that was i think the the first time where kind of the internal um kind of fire and passion kind of matched the external um and so that's how i sort of got my 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 my, my feet into um the hunger fighting space so you know when i landed in in milwaukee the hunger task force was a very you know natural landing place for me so you you continued to grow. Yeah, in that absolutely. Space. And, and I think I, I think compared to, to like my to, to my filmmaking career, um, once I found the hunger fighting space, my 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 career really became the growth of my career became easy. Right. So I landed a hunger task force for for a bit and then um, was uh, recruited to go join Feeding American National in Chicago to lead their state government relations and advocacy uh, program. Um, in Chicago and DC. So, how fulfilling did you find it to work in philanthropic projects? Incredibly. I mean, you know, I, I think the idea of of being able to to care for our friends and neighbors, uh, whether it's through um, hunger fighting, whether it's through other social services, um, whatever it might be, I think that's 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 probably the the highest and best use of any anybody's time. If if uh, if we can't care for our friends and neighbors, then then society be slowly begins to crumble, right? Like, I think the social bonds that hold us together are fueled and, and sort of watered by that sense of, like, communal care. Still ahead on WTMJ Conversations. WUWM was the first place I stopped to help me understand my city and help me understand my friends and neighbors. David Lee, the president and general manager of Milwaukee NPR, talks about what NPR taught him about this city.
You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Let's return to our conversation with David Lee, the president and general manager of Milwaukee NPR. Even though you had an interest in theater and filmmaking, no time did you say, gee, I wanted to be in broadcasting in the sense of (laughs) traditional radio and television. So how did NPR and your position come about? <laughs> the um, the op- the opportunity to lead um, a a city's or a region's NPR station doesn't come along every day, right? I've been a, a lifelong supporter of public radio. In fact, when we first moved here in 2010, 89.7 WUWM was the first place I stopped to help me understand my city and help me understand my friends and neighbors. And so I've been a longtime supporter, been a, a supporter since we moved here. And so when this opportunity came up, it was hard for me to not pull the thread. And when, when I was the last person at the end of the line, it was impossible to not say yes and to not say yes with absolute enthusiasm all right but no broadcast experience prior to that well outside of being a a a dj at my college radio station oh that uh, counts i I mean it it counts it counts about uh, that 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 and 350 will get you a cup of coffee right so um yeah otherwise no broadcast experience so what was it like walking into the radio station the first time um (laughs) it was incredible i mean you know um it is a an incredible station with uh, an incredible staff creating incredible content. They don't need a broadcaster, right? They need somebody who knows the community. They need somebody who understands the mission and can communicate that mission. And and, and I got to tell you like it is not difficult to wake up every day to share that mission which, you know, which is that we believe that that powerful storytelling at human scale can change communities and can bring communities together and and that you know human scale journalism where we're telling stories about the people who make Milwaukee and southeast Wisconsin a an, an incredible place to live um, that that helps people understand each other and that understanding leads to that thing I was talking about a little bit earlier, right, about care for community. And, and essentially, um, I've often said to, to our staff that our, our, our job, our core job is to help Southeast Wisconsinites learn to love each other again. Um, and that is the thing that in this current world where everything seems to be crazy and falling apart, Nothing else is more important, right? Because that's that's that that sense of community connection is the thing that's resilient. Once you were with NPR and you got to know some of the storytellers, and yeah. there, there are some fine broadcasters, yeah. what did you learn about southeastern Wisconsin? What has surprised me is that the stories that we tell people in southeast Wisconsin, you know, whether it's the the guy who fixes shoes. Or um, a bar owner who might have a haunted radio, um, or um, the folks who are like studying um, the 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 state of the of, of our of our lake. That these folks love their community and they love this place, and that their stories are oftentimes not told, or they're only known by by folks around them, right? And I think that like 
being a platform for those sorts of stories and for the stories of your everyday person just trying to make their community better, that's the real story about this place, right? And I think the headlines are the are the aberrations, right? The headlines are sort of the things that pop out of the sense of normalcy. Um, and I think the, our ability to, to sort of tell the story of, of what everyday citizens do is just so, so powerful. Well, you've been drawn to be on the air as well, because you're part of the Imagine Milwaukee podcast. <laughs> Used to be. I, well, I was at Imagine MKE. Uh, that was the, uh, that, that was a, uh, that was a podcast that we started um, to help our community of artists and, and creators keep in touch really during the pandemic. Now that I've moved on, it, what's been really nice is that that podcast has continued on now as Creative MKE. Do, do you miss being on the air? No. <laughs> I have to answer tough questions like these. As, some, as somebody <laughs> who wanted to be an actor, you don't want to be out there? No, 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 no. I, I mean, I, I I enjoy reading the reading our our promos, um, but I have no. There's no part of me that, that that's interested in in being on the air. Okay, but what about this story slamming thing? <laughs> I have to ask you about that yeah. because I that that's not that's not something a lot of people are aware of. Yeah. First of all, what is story slamming? Yeah. So um, I, you're referring to this organization called X Fabula that I used to be on the board of, and you know, here's a here's a fun convergence. Um, um, when I said earlier that, that I found WWM when I moved to Milwaukee, um, X Fabula had a, um, had a, had basically a segment on Lake Effect every Sunday. Um, and as you may know, X Fabula does these story slams where they, where they hold events, um, where, um, uh, people come and tell a true and, uh, a true story about their lives based on a theme under five minutes. Um, so... Um, on these segments on Lake Effect, I got to literally hear stories of Milwaukeeans about whatever they're going through. Um, and honestly, that helped me, like I said earlier, like helped me understand the people in the city that I live in. And so, um, so yeah, I used to be on the board for X Fabula for about 10 years. Um, and now I still host their events no, every but, now and again. But were you actually doing any of the story no. slamming? I, I had to get my arm twisted to tell a story once. Um, and it was about the first time I cooked a Thanksgiving dinner. How'd that turn out for you? The uh, dinner and the story. <laughs> a story turned out a little bit uh, long. I think I rambled a little bit. Um, the Thanksgiving dinner turned out great. It was the first time that I had any sense that I could probably cook. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. 80% of our funding comes from people at UME. President and General Manager of Milwaukee NPR, David Lee, talks about how public radio is supported. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. I'm Libby Collins. Today's conversation is with David Lee. He's the president and general manager of Milwaukee NPR. Let's talk about NPR and about some of the challenges you go through because you don't have the ability to sell commercials like well, like the station, yeah, like WTMJ. Sure. So, so in order to keep that on the air, in order to pay your staff, yeah. in order to pay the electric bill because uh, and, and, and for transmitters and, yeah. and all the equipment that you need, how do you raise money? We raise money through, as, as you all know, uh, pledge drives every year, on-air pledge drives. We have direct mail campaigns to folks in our database. Um, we raise money 
from everyday Milwaukeeans to fund the operation of the station. I think this is a really, really important point. 80% of our funding comes from people like you and me. That is the person fixing shoes or, or people working at Northwestern Mutual or any place else who believe in the mission of what we're doing, which is to provide accessible, free information, uh, high-quality, trustworthy news to, to our community, believe that that is worth something to them. Um, and, they, and, they, and they make a monthly sustaining donation. And at the same time, we also, while we can't sell ads, we do sell sponsorships. Um, so corporations across the region um, sponsor our programming. And of course, there's been federal funding. But, Very little. Uh, it, but the House Appropriations Committee is going to stop funding public broadcasting by 2026? They, they, they <laughs> what, what, explain what's going on with that one. Yeah, so... There's a bill in the House that would um, cease funding to all public media in in, in the nation this, by, by stripping, zeroing out funding to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That would basically cripple the network of, of public media stations where I think over 90% of Americans still get some portion of their information from some public broadcasting entity. And that would be just one of the most devastating cuts to you know, a $3 trillion a year federal budget, right? Like we are but a sliver um, of that $3 trillion. Is it going to go through? It seems unlikely, but, you know, I, I would say <clears throat> politics right now, the dynamics are incredibly bizarre. Um, I would say that if you asked me this question four or six years ago, I would have said no. Um, I think the political dynamics have changed. I think it's hard to envision a Biden administration approving any budget uh, that would basically close down any federal agency, including the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. But I think it's an important thing to remember that, you know, public radio, public media, public TV is nonpartisan. It is a, a venue for um, civic discussion and civic engagement. And I think in many instances, it is still one of the most trusted sources of news, especially in this time when, for better or for worse, right, the, the, the fragmentation of media has sort of like led to all of these outlets and individual creators to be able to like share their message. Um, public media and NPR still maintain, broadly speaking, very high levels of trust. And as institutions are continuing to fragment, we need a place where um, facts matter and that citizens can build a broadly shared consensus of the rea of reality, <laughs> you know? If, if federal funding were completely removed, would yeah. it affect your station? It would, absolutely. But I would also say that a like I said, 80% of our funding is are, are from uh, businesses and, and individuals, right? So it would absolutely affect us. It would affect other stations more. We just, for whatever reason, are just not as highly leveraged on, on, on federal funds as, as others. But, you know, it's, it's, still, it's still six figures, right? Sure. So, so would you make it? We would find a way. Absolutely. There's, we, we've been here... We've been here, Libby, 59 years through a lot of uncertainty. This isn't the most uncertain time in the history of the region or our station. Um, we'll make it through. I think the institution of public media, the institution of public radio, and 
the institution of, of WWM is is resilient, and um, and I know that with um, many many supporters uh, out here in Southeast Wisconsin, um, I know that it's not something that's going to just go away. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. I think they didn't fully understand what I did. David Lee, the president and general manager of Milwaukee NBR, as I bring your parents to work day. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with David Lee. He's the president and general manager of Milwaukee NPR. Let's go back to being born in Taiwan. Yeah. Parents coming to this country, $600 in their pocket, finding out that their son, who they probably want to be a doctor That's or something, right. wanted to go into film, and, yeah. and, and you had quite a journey. How did they feel about where you are today? <laughs> they came to visit um, over the summer, and because I needed... Uh, I wanted to, to spend some extra time with them. I had asked the staff, and we made a, a bring your friends and family to work day. And so I brought my, 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 my parents to the station. And, um, you know, you, you'd mentioned that, that, that my parents um, prob- definitely want me, wanted me to be a doctor or a dentist. And when I landed in the arts, I think they were sort of like, oh, that's weird. But my dad also wanted to be an actor. But like, you know, didn't work out for him either. So I think they kind of understood that. But also, like, it was very uncertain, right? Uh, not, 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 a, not a great career choice. When I went to nonprofits, I think they didn't fully understand what I did. You know, it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a weird thing, right? Um, and so anyways, they, they, they come to the station and I think for the first time in my career, they, they understood the work that I do, right? Because they could see it. They could see the they could see the, the the studios. They could see the offices. They could see the microphones and the and and the and the boards. And I think they probably felt a little bit more settled about about my life. <laughs> do you have any regrets? Especially when you wanted to be the Asian George Clooney so much and 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 you had that fire in your belly. Any regrets about what could have been in my career? Yeah. No. No, absolutely not. I wake up every day and I am just so thankful for where I am. I'm not one of those guys who in his early 20s made a plan. I think I'm somebody who's always kind of just followed my nose and I've been lucky enough to find myself in situations where I've been able to do something that, or do a job that, that I found interesting and that I could bring some value to the people with whom I'm working and, or to the organization. That oftentimes doesn't work out for people, right? So I recognize that I am incredibly lucky and I'm incredibly grateful for that. David Lee, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We've been talking with David Lee, the president and general manager of Milwaukee NPR. He's had a fascinating life, wanting to be an actor, a screenwriter, and yet ending up here in Milwaukee. Now, if you joined us late and you want to hear our entire conversation with David, go to WTMJ.com and share today's show with your friends and family. You'll also find a partial transcript courtesy of eCourt Reporters. For WTMJ Conversations, I'm Libby Collins.